One other thing before I get into this morning, and that is I want to give you a little bit of a, a heads up as to where we're going to be after Easter. Pastor Sean likes to, and I, I think it's a great idea, to do generally a short series uh, right coming out of Easter when we've had lots of visitors that is a little more felt needs, if you will. And this year, what we're going to do is do a series of four studies on Christian response to emotions, things like grief and frustration and, or anger and frustration and grief and loss and so on. So I think it's going to be a really useful thing. And uh, so uh, you can anticipate that. And then as we move toward the summer, we're going to pick up a couple of summers ago, we did a study in 1 Corinthians. We're going to do 2 Corinthians for this summer. So after we get through that, through Mother's Day and so on, uh, we're going to hit 2 Corinthians. All right? So that's kind of the, the road ahead for the foreseeable future in our teaching ministry here. I'm really grateful for Pastor Joey a couple of weeks ago and for Nate last week, as you can imagine, I'm not going to let him preach very often because uh, that's going to be a bit of a threat to my job, but uh, <laughs> I'm really grateful for their willingness to come and handle the scriptures in my absence. And uh, so I want to start today, and because we're covering five chapters, I want to have a little extended introduction too. So uh, we are going to get from 45 to 50 in Genesis, all right? We are going to go really fast, and I know that that's a little bit difficult, but I hope you understand it, is, it has been our intention to take a really high-level view. Here's, here's what we're seeing God doing in the life of both uh, Jacob and Joseph, and we really just hit a, a kind of a large swath of people, actually Isaac too, right? So we've gone from, I think, chapter 24, and we'll finish through 50 today. So we, of course, have not intended to go verse by verse, but I hope that you've understood the general thing. I want to tell you a little bit about my story. Some of you have heard some of this, uh, but many of you have not because you're new here. So uh, I was saved as a kid, and you're going to be amazed at how young I look, and yet all this stuff has been true in my life. So um, <laughs> uh, I hope. <laughs> you're probably going to think, that's all? But anyway, I was saved as a young kid. I was five years old. I was at summer camp. I was with my parents, and uh, uh, through the teaching of the scriptures and a chalk drawing that a guy did of Pilgrim's Progress, I understood that I needed to have my sins forgiven. And, and I went forward and talked to that man and prayed and received Christ. And, and I still remember that happening to this day in that experience. And I grew up in a pastor's home. So we moved here and there uh, throughout my uh, growing up years. So I, I never had you know grandparents nearby. So our nuclear family was really important to us and was really a, uh, a big deal. I went off to Bible college in high school largely due to the influence of my youth director, uh, who, and I went, in fact, to the Bible college he'd come from, uh, where I met my wife, who will be here in the second service, so she doesn't have to be embarrassed. But, and I met my wife through a girl I was dating at the time, <laughs> because we were going somewhere to sing together. She said, oh, Jody can really play the piano well. Let's have her come play the piano. And, and now I'm married to Jody, and have been for... <laughs> 35 years now. I married her when we, she was 12, of course. And, and uh, we stepped on into ministry. I, I finished uh, Bible college in 1982. I know, right? Um, and my wife finished a few years later, and we went off to our first ministry in western New York State. My friends growing up, because I, I hate snow. I hate snow. 
And uh, so my friends always joked with me that I'd probably end up in Alaska or something. And so instead, I ended up outside of Buffalo, New York, <laughs> which isn't a whole lot better, I realized. And uh, spent a few years, years there in youth ministry and some Christian education stuff. And then God took us to central Pennsylvania, where we had uh, uh, an opportunity to be in a, in a small church of about 80 or 90 people and gave me a few years to kind of just get a sense of what it was like to preach all the time and be a pastor. And, and it wasn't actually long, only about four years there. And God called us to our next ministry in northeastern Pennsylvania, the other snow capital of the world. And uh, so you can already tell where part of this story is going. I'm really grateful God brought us here. But uh, we spent uh, a number of years there. Uh, and uh, during that time, really began to wonder whether God wanted to use us on the mission field full time and had thought about it for years. As a child, I remember experiences that made me really just feel like, oh, man, I would just love to go to the mission field. And uh, so we got through one particular conference on missions that we held at our church at the time and just felt compelled by God to go meet with some friends of ours at a mission agency in uh, South Central Pennsylvania. And we did that and took a missions trip, a kind of an investigative trip to Australia. And uh, so having finished that trip, we came back convinced that's where God wanted us. And my wife, contrary to my upbringing, Jody grew up uh, across the street from one set of grandparents and five minutes down the road from the other. And it was not just her nuclear family, but her extended family that was so significantly important and uh, when she went away to Bible college, she was the first of the four kids in the family to leave home, to go away to school. So going to Australia, of course, was a rather significant uh, event. And we jumped in. We started raising support. I was working on my accent so I could do shrimp on the barbie and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we got to like 85% and found out our visa was going to be denied because of our little buddy Mitchell, who is the only of our kids still uh, at home and attending church with us. And uh, so some of you know who he is, and he has special needs, and the Australian government said, nope, you can't have a visa permanently for him to live in the country. And uh, so that just shut that door, and that put us into the first of what we call our wilderness experiences, where we had no idea what was next. We considered other mission fields, and God just never captured our hearts with any of that. And, and then... Uh, in the providence of God, he put me in the, at the home office of that mission agency, working with churches, local churches, and uh, I ended up down the hallway uh, in my cubby from another man who had been 30 years as a missionary in Japan, and he got to listening to me and got to know me and decided, you know what, I think I'm going to recommend him to uh, a church that supports us. And that church happened to be here in Virginia, just over in Newport News. Uh, so we went from northeastern Pennsylvania, we used to tell people, to Newport News, Virginia, by way of Australia. So it was kind of the long way around. But God brought us there. And we were super enthused, super happy for what God had done. Jody had kind of always wished she could live in Virginia over the years. And... and uh, we spent about nine, nine and a half or so years there learning a lot, learning a lot about myself and eventually just came to the conclusion our leadership was done, our ministry was done there and uh, 
God had something else for us, and so I resigned for the first time in my life, not knowing where I was going, uh, after one of my kids said to me, well, you know, uh, Dad, uh, God did get Abraham all the way to the top of the mountain with a knife in his hand before he said, okay, that's, that's good enough. And so we thought, okay, I guess we should exercise some faith. But it was faith with some assumptions, okay? Because we assumed once I resigned, churches would just start knocking at our door. I mean, we had people who were close to us. Oh, yeah, you're this and you're that and you're the other. Oh, you'll have a church in no time. And five years later, I was a carpenter putting trim in houses, wishing desperately not to do that and uh, wishing I could be back in ministry, but having come to the conclusion that chances seemed pretty, pretty good that that was never going to happen again. That was wilderness season number two. Uh, emotional wilderness is sometimes as painful as physical wilderness. Have, have you been there? Sometimes the seasons that just are so protracted and so hard and seem so, so dark are the ones that are super painful. Of course, we had other situations in our life. We had, you know, our, our Mitchell as a little guy, our fourth child who didn't hit the milestones that the rest of the kids did. And we began to realize pretty quickly something was unique about Mitchell and found out that he is special needs and has a trisomy uh, disorder. And uh, there have been lots of things in our lives. And about the time I had just given up, uh, we had started attending Coastal when it was still back in our, our former building on, uh, up in uh, Route 17 and Denby Boulevard area. And uh, we moved in that process of time down to our new building, and Pastor Andrew had come on board, and uh, Jeff Shrout, Pastor Jeff Shrout, had left to go back to seminary, and Andrew said, he was doing all of our pastoral care. We really need somebody to do that. Would you consider doing that? So I came on part-time a day a week, uh, which of course doesn't pay the bills, but it did get my feet back in ministry, and within six months, I was on staff full-time at Coastal, and within about another six months, we were discussing Coastal Gloucester and had decided, Pastor Sean and the team had decided, we're not doing a video venue. We need somebody who can at least preach a little bit, who we can have be the pastor there. And uh, so this is not like I drew the short straw. If you ever think, you know, I was on the teaching team and I drew the short straw, I don't feel that way even remotely. Uh, I've, I feel as though God has spent most of my life preparing me for the opportunity to lead Coastal Community Church Gloucester. And it's really unique to look back at life and watch what God has done and how he has taken us into seasons of life. And I'm telling you, the five years prior to Gloucester were some of my, even spiritually, some of my darkest days. I don't even and probably wouldn't if you ask, so don't, uh, talk about some of the, the things going on in my own heart spiritually during that time, just the abandonment and the sense of loss and all of that. And I'm telling you all of that because I think some of you, I, I have no doubt that some of you, perhaps many, if not all of you, have been there or are there or you're headed there and you just don't realize it yet. And I want you to take encouragement today from the life of Joseph. I want to pick three things out of chapters 40, 
546 and then jumping to 50, that I hope you will remember when it gets dark and the streetlights are out. I noticed something when I moved to Newport News more than any place I've ever lived in my life. I used to be able to drive at night because uh, one of my vehicles, I still have to turn the lights on. <laughs> and uh, I drove all the way home from the church, like nine miles one night and never turned my lights on and got home and thought, oh, huh, I didn't turn my lights on because I could see because there were street lights everywhere. I drive over here at night. I never forget to turn my lights on. You drive around here without turning your lights on, there could be trouble. It is when we're in the darkest times that we have to remember the stuff we're talking about here, okay? So I want you to know I have been where you are, if that's where you are right now, and I know the experience of wondering about the sovereignty of God. It's so mysterious sometimes, and sometimes God allows and even brings things that are, in our experience, bad and uses them to accomplish his purposes. Let me start. Let me jump into chapter 45. Nate took us through last week and gave us a, a great uh, instruction on what repentance is. I want to go back and use a title I used very early on in this series of messages called My Story in God's Story. Let me begin here reading in uh, chapter 5 of verse 45. Now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. You remember this is now Joseph revealing himself to his brothers, right? And now he's giving them some comfort and some encouragement. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Does he remember the story the way I remember the story? His brothers hated him because he told them dreams that he had, and rather than brush them off as the musings of a 17-year-old kid, they took them to heart and, and hated him for it and threatened to kill him. And one of his brothers said, oh, let's not kill him. Let's sell him as a slave. I mean, after all, he is our brother. And so they did. And as, as Nate talked last week about this issue of repentance and the importance of that in the lives of the brothers. I know he wanted badly to spend some time talking about forgiveness. There's a great lesson on forgiveness in the life of Joseph. For him to be able to come back to his brothers and say, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. Wouldn't you have wanted to say, well, go ahead. I mean, you should feel miserable. I mean, you were awful people. But I forgive you, right? He said, don't be distressed. Why? Because God has a plan. People in the culture around us think that is just empty thinking. You just throw up your hands and say, well, God has a plan, and I don't understand it. 
But I'm telling you, this is a lesson in God's quiet sovereignty. He says twice, God sent me here. He acknowledges they did it. Don't be angry or distressed with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here. Turns out that sale was just God's plan and purpose to get Joseph there. God's quiet sovereignty is is an amazing thing. What appeared to be a series of blunders and injustices in Joseph's early experiences proved to be God at work in unseen ways to demonstrate his sovereign kingdom work among the nations. God sent me here. Whatever your circumstances, God has been involved in getting you there. And he has a plan. And his plan is related to his purpose for his people. God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 5 says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. Verse 7 says, it wasn't just to deliver Egypt. It wasn't just to vindicate the dreams that Joseph had shared with his brothers. It wasn't just to protect Joseph's own family and lineage. God sent Joseph there to preserve his brothers and their families as well. He would be the guardian of the descendants of Jacob. God was sending his people, and and we're told in this whole section, in in these five chapters, that the whole purpose of this was so that God, and we'll come around to it here in just a minute, would make them into a great nation. This is an incubation period during which God would generate a nation of people through whom would come the Messiah. This was God's plan for saving the covenant people. So first of all, God has a plan. Secondly, this is all about God's story. Now I want to jump over to chapter 46. Let me read the first couple of verses, and then I think you'll join me. Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And these four things are very important for you to remember. Then he said, God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. First thing is a point of identification. God says, I am God. This is a recognition of God's person. This is who he is. I am God. And he specifies the God of your fathers. Joseph had spent 20 years now in Egypt being raised in a polytheistic culture that believed in many gods. 
And God identifies himself, and I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the one. This is continuity. This is God saying, I've had a plan, I've had a purpose, I have been developing this for years through your grandfather and your your great-grandfather and your grandfather and your father, and now through you, you are going to care for my people. It's God's person. Secondly, an affirmation. God's promise. I will make you into a great nation. That's what God had said to Abraham, right? I will make into you a great nation of peoples, a great number of peoples, so many that you can't even count them. That was beginning right now. There were about 70 of them when they all ended up in Egypt. That's not a nation. That's not, a, that's not a, anything you can't count. We knew how many. Even when they came out, there were maybe 2 million of them. But they incubated and they began to grow and the people of God began to be formed. Galatians chapter 3, I don't want you to ever forget that this includes us. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So as God is beginning this incubation process to build this physical nation of people through whom the Messiah would come, he's beginning the process <coughs> excuse me, of, of generating and creating the people of God who would be called by his name from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Everyone who by faith would become a child of God. That's God's promise to do, and he will fulfill that promise. Thirdly, there is an element of participation. Don't you love this about God's presence? I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Wherever you are, God hasn't sent you there. He has led you there. Whatever it is in your life that you're struggling with right now, God has taken you there because there's something he's doing. I will be with you. During one of those wilderness seasons, when I wanted so badly to know the next step, I wanted so desperately to know, God, just tell me what you want me to do. I'm ready. I will do whatever you want. I came across Exodus chapter 33 in my devotions one day, and I came across these verses. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you said, I know you by name, and you've found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And there was something about those verses. All right, let's finish. That's a good thing. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, God said, 
my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And as I read these verses, something clicked in me that I was so busy trying to find out what way God wanted me to go so I could just get going. And God was saying, I'll show you my way so you can know me better. Because God goes with you. We've talked before about Hebrews 13, right? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. If you are a child of God by faith in Christ, you are never away from the presence of God. And then there's that little sentence that talks about their emancipation and God's power. I will also bring you up again. God as the unseen cause. Now, for the rest of this chapter and on through 47, it's just a description of the famine that took place and how uh, God used Joseph to preserve life over these next years. And then the blessings of Jacob on his children in chapter 48, actually two of his grandchildren that would be uh, considered his. And 49 talks about the blessings that he gave to all of his sons. There's a whole lot of stuff here that I'm bypassing, and we just need to do that. But I want to move on to the last part and remind you that God uses the hard stuff. And I get that from chapter 50, and I'm going to drop down to verse 15, because now Jacob has died. The father, the patriarch of the family, has died. And now the brothers get really scared and they're thinking to themselves man we really messed up here because now after all the horrible things that we've done to joseph what if he hasn't forgiven us what if he's just playing along because dad's alive and so they come to him still trying to figure a way to save their skin verse 15 when joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead they said it may be that joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear Am I in the place of God? That is big picture thinking. That is the ability to rise above the circumstances I'm in and recognize certain things about my life. One is this, I'm not God. Now I know very few people, I know Farrakhan recently decided to proclaim he's the Messiah, but whatever, the, the average run-of-the-mill normal person recognizes they're not God, right? But we do have to be reminded once in a while that we are not the ones in control of our history. And that that's a really good thing, right? How many of you have made decisions in your history, in your past, that you are so glad God is sovereign <laughs> over the decisions you've made? Am I in the place of God? As for you, verse 20 says, 
You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God knows what he's doing. People often wonder about the presence of evil in the world and, and how God can uh, allow things that are bad in my life. And, well, you know, it just, I don't understand why God's letting this happen to me. And, and this is so frustrating and it just doesn't seem fair. And, and you know what? You're right. It's frustrating and it's not fair because some people who don't love God are getting treated what appears to be better than what you are. And it's not fair. But I'm telling you, please never forget that God isn't about fairness, He's about justice. And he sent Jesus to take the penalty for your sin and you go to heaven and that's not fair. <laughs> God knows what he's doing. God, what became of Joseph in Egypt, said one of the commentators, was the handiwork of God. Too great for him to have accomplished alone. Evil succumbs to God's gracious purposes in behalf of his creation. Somehow in the mysterious sovereignty of God, he can take that which is evil and bring good from it and accomplish his purposes. We talked early on about the importance of knowing that we are not central. We're not the central character even in our own story. God is. What he is doing in your life right now is part of what God is doing in history. There's a plan. There's a purpose. Thirdly, I'm not God. God knows what he's doing. Thirdly, God doesn't give details. Now listen, I know that when you want the details, that's frustrating. But when you don't want them, you're really glad, right? How, how many times have you been in a situation where you've gotten through something and come out the other side of it and said, man, I'm glad I didn't know that was coming. I'd have avoided that at all costs. He doesn't give a schedule. You know, as Joseph talks to his brothers, let me read 22 to 24. Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers... I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now that sounds like that's not going to be too far away, right? It's going to be like four centuries away. Because God doesn't give details. There was no schedule given as to when they would come out. And as one commentator wrote, God's will does not come to us in the whole, but in fragments, and generally in small fragments. That's why Psalm, one, Psalm 37 says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. That's why in Psalm 119, we're told that God's word is a lamp to our feet. We don't want to see the whole picture. Here's number four, though. I can still trust him. I'm not God. God knows what he's doing. God doesn't give details, but I can still trust him. And I probably should take still out of there. I should probably just say that's why I can trust him. 
because God knows what he's doing. He's not giving me the details because I don't need the details right now. Now, before we leave our study in Genesis, I want to give you this gospel connection one more time because I think it's so important for us to understand that while we're way back at the beginning of the book, we're back here at the beginning of history and the beginning of the history of God's people, it was not only stories about what was happening right then. It was a story about what God is doing in the world. And so here's the gospel connection. Galatians 3, verse 16. Now the promises made to Abraham and to his offspring, they were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. I talked about that way back when we were talking about Abraham. Your offspring was a singular word, and it was not referring to a specific bunch of descendants that would come from Abraham. It, the God's promise was referring to Christ. In you and in your offspring will all nations of the world be blessed. Jesus lived perfectly on earth. He claimed and proved repeatedly that he was God the Son. Jesus died after suffering greatly. And I want to add, he died as our substitute. Nate talked about Judah and how he offered himself as one to be the substitute for the rest of the brothers, and how that King David, not yet King David, just the shepherd boy David, stepped in and offered himself as a substitute to fight the evil in place of all of the people of Israel. Similarities there abound, but Jesus truly and genuinely was the substitute who took on my sin and your sin and paid the penalty for it. Must have seemed like a terrible turn of events to the disciples, right? Next Friday, uh, or next weekend, is, is kind of a, a preparation in my mind as we come here together. And the week after that is the weekend of Resurrection Sunday, Easter. And on Friday, we have what we have come to call Good Friday, not because the events were good, but because the results of the events were good, right? That day in history must have been a very confusing day, to say the least, right? To the disciples, they must have looked at each other and thought, what, what was all that about? All of this amazing stuff that Jesus had done and said for three years, and now he's dead. And Satan must have been delighted. Satan also does not have the ability to see into the future. He must have been delighted. But Jesus bodily rose again, 
right? That's what Resurrection Sunday is about. That's what we celebrate at Easter is that Jesus actually came back to life again. Not some kind of spiritual thing, not, not, not just some kind of emotional response. It wasn't a bunch of hallucinations. Jesus actually came back to life again and walked around and talked to people. And in doing so, conquered sin and death and vindicated both his claims and those of the Father and providing salvation for all who would believe. So let me give you a couple thoughts to take home. One, you are not random. What's going on in your life is not random. It's not just happenstance. It's not just, I don't know where this fits. It fits, even if you don't know where it fits. God is using your history as part of his story. Secondly, though, you are not central. God and the magnification of his glory in the world is central. Now listen, for me, that's a relief. If I'm central even to my own story, that's a lot of pressure. But God is in involved in my life using me to magnify his glory thirdly there is purpose in the pieces of your life there may be a lot of pieces lying around right now there is purpose in that and lastly you can have a relationship with the sovereign god of the universe through jesus if you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you've never repented of your sin and acknowledged that you stand separated from a holy God, if that's never happened to you, I plead with you to, to make that right today. Don't walk out of here without knowing you're rightly related to the God of the universe because he has sovereignly worked in your life even to bring you here today to this service. Whatever the circumstances were, and perhaps it's so that you would finally come to him and say, oh God, I know I'm a sinner and I can't get to heaven on my own. I'm trusting in Jesus. I believe that he died and was buried and came back to life again for me and in my place as my substitute. And I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin based on what Jesus did and who he is. And if you'll do that, God will save you. Listen, there is... There's a lot we've missed, but I hope there's a lot you've gained in our study in Genesis because, man, it's powerful stuff. Uh, we're not going to have the band come back. I know we've got to kind of get everybody uh, out before the next service, but I am going to ask you to stand with me, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to ask God's blessing on us. Listen, you need to talk to somebody. Come on up here. We've got people who will sit and pray with you and, and talk with you and encourage you and... Uh, do their best to help you understand what you need to understand today. But in all of it, your story is part of God's story. Please don't ever forget that. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful today for uh, your sovereignty, your providence that you uh, mysteriously superintend everything that's going on. Lord, we see so many things around us and we see things in our lives that we struggle with and we wonder, why did that have to happen? That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. And somehow or another, just like in the life of Joseph, you take all of those things and you weave them into the fabric of our lives and 
weave that fabric into the fabric of your story in history. Lord, we're grateful to be part of that, and we're grateful to trust a God who is so above and beyond us that he can do that even when we don't even get it at all. So I thank you for those here who are my brothers and sisters. Most of this group are are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I thank you that you've brought us here together in this place. And I pray that you would uh, humble us, Lord. Help us to repent again and believe the gospel that, that you sent Jesus here to live and to die and to be brought back to life again for us and that you have made us uh, righteous in him. Lord, give us grace to walk with you. I pray for the one or more that are here that don't know Jesus, have never trusted him, don't maybe even understand exactly what that means, that they'd make that clear this morning. For I pray in Christ's name.